You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I'm going to keep this week's top of show chit-chat uncharacteristically brief because first of all, I don't know where to start the insanity that is open carry the hypocrisy and bald face, bold type racism of the national rifle association, the ongoing carnage, the murder of black men by and boys by police officers all over this country. The carnage in Dallas, I don't know where to start. I want to back up and start with John Crawford and Tamir Rice, uh, an adult man and a 12-year-old boy shot down by police for the crime of having toy guns in their hands in open carry states, which was met with no pushback or protest from the National Rifle Association. And then in the last week, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, the, the horror of the murder, in my opinion, the murder of Philando Castile. And of course, that video that if you haven't seen, you should watch. We should all be forced to watch. The video made by Philando Castile's girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, as he sat in the seat next to her in that car, bleeding to death. With the officer who shot him on the outside of the car screaming and pointing a gun into the car, pointing the gun at Philando Castile, at Diamond Phillips, at Diamond Phillips' four-year-old daughter. We could talk about all of that and the protests in Minnesota and the protests in Baton Rouge and the arrests and the disproportionate response and the carnage it feels like 1968. I could talk about all of that, but I feel like I should shut the fuck up, frankly. Look around on Twitter. Look around on Tumblr or social media. And what you see, and I think quite rightly, are a lot of African Americans objecting to white people making this about them or about how they felt or about how they reacted or about what they think, about what they think Black Lives Matter should do or do next or what Black Lives Matter must embrace or disavow. And people have pointed out, and I think quite rightly, that maybe white people on social media and white people on plain old media media should shut up and listen. And as they say in Tumblr land, center the voices of African Americans in this. So I think that's what I'm going to do here today. Rather than me going into this and sharing how I feel and expressing my outrage, and I am indeed outraged. I want to invite my African-American listeners, and we know we have lots of African-American listeners who have something to say, something that they would like broadcast in this space on my pathetic little, usually kind of upbeat sex advice platform. If you have something to say about this that you would like the largely overwhelmingly white listenership of the Savage Lovecast to hear, give us a call, 206-302-2064. At the end of the show every week, we take caller comments, responses, critiques, insights, and we assemble them together into a short montage, and we allow people to have their own say and speak back. And we're going to do that next week. 
So next week's end of the show montage will be the calls we get this week from African-Americans who have something to say and would like it said here, would like it heard by my largely white audience. And we are just going to get out of your way and we're going to listen instead of listening to me talk about it. We're going to listen to you talk about it. And I am interested in listening to what you have to say and less interested in hearing what I have to say, frankly, about this. That number again, 206-302-2064. Give us a buzz. All right, coming up today on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, we have Alina, Muslim blogger, sex writer, children's book author to talk about sex negativity in the Muslim community. Important programming note, I recorded this interview with Alina before the massacre in Orlando. So we don't address the issues of Islamophobia in the wake of Orlando or Islamic homophobia in relationship to Orlando during our convo. It's still a really great convo. And in the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, we've got Parker Marie Malloy here to talk about drag and the trans community. Hi, Dan. Um, my name is Casey. I live in San Diego, California, and I'm calling because earlier tonight I was using my boyfriend of a year's computer, Danger Zone, and I unintentionally, of course, snooped a little bit. And under a hidden folder called Taxes was screenshots of him and who I think is next. I don't really know. Um, in a video they had recorded together. The video wasn't there, but screenshots were there. They're super graphic and really sexual. Um, part of the problem, well, not problem, but part of the things I'm reacting to with this is, um, for one, him and I make videos. Um, I've asked him numerous times if he's made them with extras, and he said no. Um, and number two, a few of these screenshots were opened um, a month ago. Um, we recently relocated out here to San Diego, and, you know, we've had a little bit of tumultuous issues around trust, but no real bro- breach of trust. Um, this just felt, felt like inadvertently hidden from me. And so I guess I'm just calling because I'm just curious about your feedback. Some things it's better for the other partner not to know, um, but I do feel lied to in this case and I'm kind of just you know feeling a little overwhelmed with my reaction my plan moving forward is an open conversation with him about it um, but I don't want him to feel like he can't share stuff with me so I don't want to have an attack either um, but I just feel kind of you know lied to and a bit confused about why he would lie to me because I'm typically a pretty open person you don't want him to feel like he can't share stuff with you you just want him to know that if he doesn't share stuff with you, you're going to snoop till you find it. He didn't inadvertently hide those files from you. He very vertently hid those files from you. You went snooping into a file labeled taxes where he'd hidden away some private mementos that perhaps he occasionally likes to call up and have a wank about. I'm here from the future to tell you that the man you're with is going to occasionally masturbate about other people, even if you're in a monogamous relationship and you guys successfully execute monogamy day in, day out for the next 50 fucking years, he's occasionally going to have a dirty thought about someone else. And so are you. And that's okay. And being able to acknowledge that to each other, that's actually healthy and a good place to get to in a long-term committed relationship, even a monogamous one, actually particularly a monogamous one, because then you're both freed of the responsibility of having to police each other for evidence of what you should just assume to be true. That sometimes he's going to think about or desire other people, whether he acts on that or not. Same goes for you. Allowing him through fantasy 
through masturbation, through occasionally closing his eyes while you're giving him a blowjob and thinking thoughts, to go someplace else, to virtually cheat on you, to virtually obtain a little bit of that variety that we as humans are hardwired to seek in all aspects of our lives, that'll make your long-term committed monogamous relationship more stable, not less stable. All right, why would he lie to you? You're obviously into him. You're good giving him game. You were down for filming and making videos. Why would he tell you that he'd never done that with anyone else before? I don't know. Maybe he knows. Maybe when you confront him, he'll tell you. I can make a couple of guesses. Could be that he was worried, as so many people with a kink are. Maybe this is his kink. That if he told you that this was sort of an established thing and he'd done it with other people, that that would hurt your feelings or you would feel like you were just being plugged into an existing erotic structure, even though, of course, you are and we all are when we meet people and we work for them or don't work for them erotically. And he thought that that would skeeve you out to know that this thing that you two enjoyed doing so much together, he'd actually enjoyed doing with others. And so he withheld that information because he felt self-conscious about it or worried that you would have a meltdown about it and what it would mean and what it might mean. Obviously, you know what you know and you want some assurances from him and you need some reassurance that you're still number one. What you shouldn't do is continue to snoop. What you shouldn't do is tell him or order him to throw those files away because he's just going to bury them deeper somewhere on his computer. And I would actually encourage him to do that if you tell him to throw them away and he pretends to under duress, just bury them deeper or put them on a hard drive and hide it because he has a right to his mementos and he has a right to his memories. And you don't get to edit his history. And you get to, I guess, traditionally in committed monogamous relationships, police his desires and his fantasies and whether or not he's pressing mementos into the service of those fantasies. But it's a fool's errand. It just ruins whatever it is that you two have by pitting your connection and your sex life and the sex that you have when you guys are connected and it's popping against his fond memories of the sex he's had with other people. It's going to make you less appealing because he's going to look at you and you're going to be the reason that he's in trouble, the reason he can't, the reason that he feels bad. And you don't want to be the reason he feels bad. You want to be the reason he feels great. And to be able to have you and have those screen grabs too. And when you're away or when you're tired, it's three o'clock in the morning and he can't go to sleep because he's horny to open a couple of those images and bang one out. Maybe next to a couple of screen grabs of you too, to flip through that Rolodex or solo decks, let him have it. It doesn't take anything away from you. He's had these images on his computer for however long you guys have been together, the entire time you've been together. And it only became a problem when you discovered them. You weren't neglected. You never felt that he wasn't attracted to you or he'd really rather be with his ex. It's only a problem now because you made it a problem by snooping. But you're not looking back over the course of your relationship the entire time you've been together and recognizing signs of why it wasn't working or what was wrong with your sexual connection. So there's nothing about him having and enjoying these images occasionally. It was a month ago you said he opened those files. There's nothing about that that harms your relationship in any way. So don't turn it into something that harms your relationship by attempting to police him around his screen grabs or his mementos or his past. He does, however, owe you an explanation about the lie. 
Hey, Dan. I am a straight man in my 50s, widowed about three years ago. While not ready for a relationship, I was not willing to be lonely, so I went looking for just something casual, someone casual to, you know, sex, friendship, that kind of stuff. Place an ad, Craigslist, imagine that, and found somebody. We've been together about eight months or so, and I think we've gotten much closer than we either one of us planned on being. And we never promised each other exclusivity or any kind of fidelity, um, not even for health and safety reasons, but um, it just kind of happened that I've, I've been exclusive and she is for the most part. There you go, been exclusive. Um, she dropped on me a couple of days ago that she has actually been with other guys. She talks about how much she loves me. She talks about how much I mean to her. She talks about how great the sex is with us, between us and how much more fulfilling and spiritual it is. But she was with a friend she hangs out with. It was just kind of a why not. She's divorced. She doesn't want to be in another relationship. She wants her freedom. So I think she figures that this is her freedom that she staked out and this is what she wants. She did not cheat on me because we have never declared that we will be exclusive. She's upset because she feels she hurt me. I've tried to do all the right things to say. I have no claim on you. We never claimed to be exclusive. And I try to be there to support her for how bad she feels that she might have hurt me, um, which means I can't acknowledge how much she's hurt me. How do I cope with this? I wished you'd left a callback number, and I understand that you were very upset by the end of the call. And I ache for you, but I wish you'd left a callback number because I really want to ask what it is you need help coping with. You got what you were looking for. You got what you wanted from the universe, which was something casual. You said yourself, you were not ready for a committed relationship of any sort. And you found someone for casual sex. That was good. Someone that you actually liked. And it was non-exclusive. Non-exclusive is basically what people mean by casual. Non-exclusive and casual means that person might be fucking other people. If that's not something that you can handle, that person fucking someone else, if that's going to devastate you emotionally, as this clearly has, then you aren't cut out for casual, non-exclusive, non-committed relationships. Obviously, you didn't anticipate that going in. Your wife died three years ago. You are a widow. My heart goes out to you. I am sorry for your loss. It seems to me, though, that you went flying into this space, not ready for a relationship, wanting something casual, wanting sex and intimacy in your life, without really thinking through what it would mean for you. Obviously, you didn't think it through. What it would mean for you emotionally if you were intimate with somebody on the regular and you really liked that person and they were fucking somebody else or somebody else's. Now you know something about yourself. You've learned something. 
that you didn't know during your marriage or didn't need to know or have to know during your marriage and you didn't realize going into this relationship, which is that casual and non-exclusive is not for you. Not something that you can handle. Maybe this is how you cope with it. You tell yourself that you have learned a valuable lesson, that good has come from this experience, including the experience of pain. Because now you know what it is you need and want. And what you need and want is for sex to come bundled with commitment and exclusivity. What you need and want is a monogamous commitment from the person that you're with. And I hope that you make a monogamous commitment and are willing to make a monogamous commitment to that person. I hope that you weren't fucking other women and having this kind of reaction when you found out that she was fucking other men. And I assume that you weren't because you would have included that detail. I expect because you seem like an honest and decent guy and you seem like a guy who's not trying to let himself off the hook for what is kind of a tragic comedy of errors here. So what do you do? What do you do going forward? You own your pain. You don't want to make her feel bad, but you can't bottle this up. But you need to explain to her and you need to accept yourself that you stepped on a rake that you didn't know was sitting in the grass. You didn't see this pain coming. You didn't see this hurt coming. That this wasn't something that you anticipated. So there's no malice in what she did, but that doesn't mean that there's anything illegitimate about the pain that you are currently experiencing. Whether or not you two can continue to be together is a whole other conversation. Can you get past it? She did not betray you, but can you get past the hurt? And dot, 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 do what? Obviously, you can't continue being with her casually or non-exclusively. That if you're going to go forward with this relationship or enter into another relationship with some other woman, knowing what you know now about yourself – that relationship, either with the woman, this woman, or some woman to be named later, that relationship will have to be exclusive, will have to be not casual. You are not emotionally cut out for casual sex. If you go to pieces when the person you're having casual sex with has casual sex with somebody who isn't you. I'm sorry you had to learn this about yourself through trial and painful error, but now you know it. Hey, what's going on, Dana? My friend just recommended me to listen to your stuff, and I've got a, I've got myself in a little situation. So basically, um, this girl, you know, she's like a virgin thing and everything. She's like really cool. So like basically, what happens is like I'm in the Marine Reserves, and she was telling me like, you know, like we we're making out and stuff on her bed, and she's like, I really want to have sex with you. And you know, I was like, all right, that's cool. And she was uh, in the middle of sex. She was really nervous. She was asking me these questions. <laughs> And, like, uh, talking to make it less awkward. She was saying, hey, you know, like, uh, I want to know if you want to come camping with me this week. And I was like, well, you know, I really can. You know, I got to go to this AT thing, which is two weeks um, in the summer. And she was all, uh, um, you know, the desert, you know, like, I just said the desert, you know, like, no, I got to go to the desert because everyone's 29 palms. Everyone just, re you know, refers to it as the desert. And she's like, Afghanistan? And, you know, I was just in the moment. I just said yes, and her best friend was telling me, you know, like two days later, you know, like the one thing she hates is lying, and I'm really worried. I don't know how to go about it. I don't know how to explain it to her, you know, because I, I really want things to work out with her. I want to have 19-year-old straight marine problems. 
I would trade my problems for your problems right now in a heartbeat. Okay, here's how you walk this back. This you can file under completely harmless lie. It's not like you let her believe that you were deploying to Afghanistan and so she was excited by that or felt sorry for you and then she fucked you and therefore lost her virginity to you perhaps under false pretenses. You were already fucking. You weren't just in the moment. You were in the girl when you said you had to go to the desert. Such hot, dirty talk you two were engaged in at that moment. Future plans. And she said Afghanistan and you said yes. And so it's not like you said yes to get in her pants. You were in her pants. You were in her. And you said yes. And it was a harmless, white lie, flustered in the moment. And what was probably going on psychologically for both of you was it was sexier for her to think she was fucking this hot Marine who was about to deploy to a war zone and it made you bigger, tougher, hotter, sexier. It put you in a kind of existential now, but literal then if you were actually deploying to Afghanistan peril that made you momentarily more desirable. And you, I think subconsciously sensing that that's kind of what was cranking her up a little at that moment was the thought of you not going for bonus training for a couple of weeks in the uh, desert you said yes because you understood that like she was – this was in a way kind of dirty talk and then you got into an improv headspace where you never say no. You shouldn't say no during dirty talk just like you don't say no during improv. You say yes and. And so you said yes because there was something about the thought of you deploying that was arousing for her and it was your job at that moment while you guys were having sex, while she was having a sex for the first time to keep the arousal thing going. And you didn't keep the arousal thing going by proposing to her. You didn't keep the arousal thing going by telling a malicious or harmful lie that filled her with false hopes or leveraged her own expectations or desires against her in any way. You just said yes when she said Afghanistan. And so you go to her and you say, I was just sort of carried away in the moment and said yes that I was going to Afghanistan. But I'm actually going – for two weeks of training and then I'll be back. And while this is, a, I think, a harmless lie that you told in the heat of the moment, you still got to fess up. You can't let her think you're in Afghanistan when you're just on training for a couple of weeks. So you got to walk this back. You got to come clean. But if she doesn't accept your apology, if she can't understand why that lie might have fallen out of your mouth at that particular moment, a relationship wasn't in the cards anyway, even if you hadn't have told that lie. And you can come out better actually at the end of this if you take the right approach which is to say to her I'm really sorry I don't know why that came out of my mouth like that I was just really carried away and swept away by the moment and and how sexy it was and I didn't want to say no and then I said yes and it, this isn't who I am I don't routinely lie to anyone certainly not to someone that I'm attracted to it was just a brain fart and brain farts correlate very strongly with erections Hi, Dan. Uh, love the show. I, For some context to my question, I have a really problematic relationship with my mom. Uh, she has personal boundary issues ever since I was a kid. So, for example, things like slapping me on the ass, giving me big, sloppy, wet kisses, things that would consistently make me really uncomfortable, and she uh, wouldn't stop doing these kinds of things when I asked her to. 
eventually I hit the big red button and blew up the relationship, and she is yet to talk to me again. But fast forward to now, um, there are little things that my amazing, beautiful, long-time girlfriend does that remind me of stuff my mom did. Things like a playful slap on the ass while I'm passing by her will sort of uh, drum up these images and they're so small and innocuous and harmless that it's uh, hard to bring up and I certainly don't want my girlfriend to stop giving me wet kisses or stop slapping me on the ass in a playful way. I brought it up before but I was hoping maybe you could give some advice on how to rid my brain of this connection. You say you ended your relationship with your mother. You confronted her about this stuff, her behavior, and she didn't take it seriously. And then there came a point where you just had to cut off contact with your mom. And it sounds like that was the right move. But you don't mention ever speaking with a counselor or a therapist about your mother and her lack of respect for your body, for your physical autonomy, or her lack of respect for appropriate boundaries for the ways in which she regularly and routinely violated you. I think that might be a good place to start. If you've never spoken with somebody about this at length, never went and got your head shrunk, never talked to a counselor about it, go talk to a counselor about it because you're obviously still carrying around this tension, these grooves your mother carved into you physically. You're still seized up and your girlfriend touches you in a way that your mother used to touch you and it just throws you way, way back. And maybe a therapist could help you with that. Listening to your call, I was thinking about how there's a couple of ways in which I don't like to be touched because I find them deeply unsexy and they throw me out of the moment. And they're sort of boner cyanide, I call them, and just it ruins it for me. And so my husband of all these years, he just doesn't touch me in those couple of places. But they're very non-critical places <laughs> to not be touched. They're easily avoided if the ways in which I couldn't be touched was you can't slap my ass or you can't uh, you know, initiate contact in that way or you can't give me a sloppy kiss, that would be a problem for my husband because those are kind of central to you know, physical contact between long-term intimate sexual partners to, to take out sloppy kissing because there was this trauma in my life. That would deprive my husband of something that may matter to him, that he may need, that I wouldn't want to deprive him of. My couple of hangups deprive him of something that's just not that important. So I think you should work on this for your lovely, loving girlfriend's sake and try to create, perhaps with the help of a counselor, new associations between these behaviors, the, this kind of touch, and your feelings. Carve new grooves. And your girlfriend can potentially help with that. And again, I would touch base with the counselor about this, talk with the counselor about this, run this suggestion or idea by a counselor that at those moments when she wants to slap your ass or engage in sloppy kissing, maybe all you need to hear at those moments is I'm not your mother. And that sounds awful. maybe a little counterintuitive because what happens when you're touched that way is it like invokes your mother and it calls your mother to mind in this way that's really unpleasant. And Perhaps, and this is just me spitballing it, but maybe it would help in those moments to be reminded explicitly 
by your girlfriend that she is not this other person. And maybe at those moments, she asks your permission instead of just lunging or going for it. She has the impulse to slap your ass, then she slaps your ass. You can insert something in between that impulse and that action, which is use your fucking words. That there are going to be times when if you just say, I really want to slap your ass, then you can brace for it and you can be in the moment. Because what happens, I think, for you partly is you're standing there, you're doing the dishes, you're walking by, and you're not thinking about your girlfriend. You're not thinking about your relationship. You're not engaged with her. And then there comes that physical contact and it throws you all the way back. It reminds you of you have this physical conditioned response to it. And it just, boom, you're with your mom. You're at your mom. Your mom is present in your mind. And if your girlfriend could just say to you in between the impulse to slap your ass and the slapping of your ass, I want to slap my boyfriend's ass or I want to slap your ass. And then you're engaged with her. You're hearing her voice. You turn and you make eye contact with her and she ain't your mom. And at that moment where you guys are really engaged, because if the first moment of engagement is the physical contact, is that feeling, that physical touch, that's mom. But if the first moment of contact is negotiating that physical touch and engaging and locking eyes with and communicating with your girlfriend, maybe mom won't be present. Maybe mom won't be in the room. She won't even have to say, I'm not your mom. She just has to say, oh my God, I really want to slap that hot ass. You turn around, you make eye contact and you wiggle your butt at her and say, go ahead. And I bet if you roll that way, if you can get your girlfriend to roll that way with you at those moments out of consideration for your trauma, for what you were subjected to by this toxic parent, it'll carve that new groove. It'll help you be in the moment with your girlfriend instead of thrown back into traumatic moments with your mom. Good luck. Hi, Dan. My name is Christina, and I'm a 30-year-old married woman. Um, my husband and I have an 11-month-old daughter together, and the question about whether or not to get her baptized is starting to come up. And um, my husband was raised Catholic, and I was raised, I guess you could say, without religion. And my in-laws would like us to have the baby baptized in a Catholic church. Full disclosure, my husband and I did get married in, in the Catholic church about five years ago. And at the time, it didn't seem like that big of a deal. And I agreed, mostly because the priest that married us was the priest that baptized my husband and um, married my in-laws. So, you know, there's sort of a nice sentiment here because the priest that would baptize my daughter is uh, that same priest. However, I have some pretty strong feelings about the Catholic Church and their treatment of women and LGBT individuals and their views on birth control and abortion and these are all things that I disagree with. So a big part of me feels like having our daughter baptized in the church would be like lying and lying pretty publicly. But at the same time, it's something that would make my husband's family really happy and really not hurt the baby. So I'm really torn about it. And my husband doesn't really seem to have a strong feeling about it either, or at least not a strong enough feeling to start a whole fight with his family. And I have to say, I'm also afraid of agreeing to this. And by agreeing to this, agreeing to continue to let my in-laws 
you know, butt into my daughter's religious upbringing. So I'm really torn about how much I should, you know, quote unquote, put my foot down. So do you know that I'm someone who has problems with the Catholic Church around reproductive freedom, around choice, around the treatment of women, around particularly the treatment of lesbian, gay, bi and trans people? Yeah, I mean, I've, you know, I've read your books and read, you know, about your feelings growing up. Catholic um, and gay. In a Catholic family. And I'm, right. I'm, I, there, currently, my uh, Twitter, my bio reads, the Catholic League says I'm morally destitute and relentlessly anti-Catholic. The Catholic League is constantly spitting out press releases about what an anti-Catholic asshole I am and how I right. persecute and oppress the Pope. <laughs> I've bullied <laughs> the, the Catholic League accused me of bullying the Pope, which is something a faggot with a sex podcast can do from Seattle. Whereas the Pope, whereas the Pope himself, and no Pope ever has ever, ever bullied a gay dude, right? With the entire force and institution of the Catholic Church behind him. Right. And you right. do know that I'm a parent? Yeah. And do you know that I had my son baptized? I think I missed that part. Yeah, I had my son baptized. My son is a baptized Catholic, as am I. Uh, yeah. And, and I did it for my family. I did it for... yeah. You know, you're not you're in a op, you're one of those opposite sex relationships that can make babies uh, in under most circumstances. And my husband and I are, of course, fags and we adopted. But my family had always been so great about our stuff, about the gay stuff, about treating us uh, like they would any other couple and treating my husband like any other person who'd married into the family, which meant treating him like a son uh, and accepting our son as they would accept any other grandchild, any other member of the family. And when we were wrestling with what to do about the baptism, which my mother wanted us to do, mm -hmm. what really ran through our heads was they've been so great and welcoming and accepting of our shit and our differences. And they've embraced us. Really? We're not going to like spend 45 minutes in a church one Sunday. They've welcomed him into the family on our terms why can't we bring him into the family for 30, 45 minutes on their terms to, to, to go through this, this ritual that had such meaning and significance to my mother and my great aunts who are nuns and the extended family to put him in the same baptismal gown that I had been in, that my mother had been in, that my grandfather had been in, that his father had been in was just this way of saying, yeah, he is a member of this family as are we. And we can, even though we don't believe we can respect this our family's traditions around this ritual dunking of the new member. And I think it's a little different for me for you guys because you know, I'm sure they were very accepting of you and your relationship without having to clear a few hurdles. So what they're asking you to do in return is they're asking you to leap a hurdle after really not having leapt any themselves. And that is the thing that I struggle with is I feel like Continuing to participate in Catholic rituals is me uh, sort of agreeing to let them have a say in not only mine, but my child's religious life and upbringing. But you, and, can, you can wall that off. You can say, this is the end. We are going to have this baptism. Don't be looking forward to a first communion or a confirmation because right. this baptism is the end of this. And our kid, if they choose to be religious as an adult, they can 
choose to be religious as an adult, but we are not indoctrinating this kid. We're not raising them in the faith, but as a gesture, we are going to have this kid baptized. You know, we had a, Terry and I had our son baptized. Our son has not, mm-hmm. except for a couple of funerals, seen the inside of a church since. Yeah. Is it reasonable for me to tell my husband, you know, I need you to talk to your family and tell them that this is it, that they, you know, that we're doing this because we, we, you know, want to participate in the, in the family this way. But from now on, we need to determine you know, us with our child as she grows need to make Why? the decisions about her religious upbringing. I'm going to be a passive-aggressive weirdo Catholic about this. Yeah. But why yeah. Why poison the moment where you're making this lovely gesture by saying, but in the future, we're going to flip you off? <laughs> yeah. That's not something you, need, you even need to confront for six more years or seven more years. First communion shit. And so if they start talking to you about first communion five years from now, you can be like, you know... We're not comfortable (laughs) dictating to this child what their religious beliefs should be. They're growing up in a Catholic family. They're a baptized Catholic. If they choose to become a practicing Catholic later in life, they can go and get, she can go and get her first communion then. Yeah. I guess I'm just worried about, you know, like getting the, the Bible picture book and And getting, and I, I got those books too. We got those books. We got those books and they went on a shelf where they didn't yeah. hurt anybody. Yeah. They're not spring loaded. They don't pop open and hurl themselves across the room in front of your kid. <laughs> That's fair. She can't read. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, what solved it for me, were you raised Catholic yourself? No. Uh, my, I mean, my dad went to parochial school and my mom was raised by, Wolves. Uh, I guess, atheist Swiss immigrants. Athe- atheist wolves. Um, what solved it for me was actually meeting some Jews. Yeah. You know, when I was a young adult and, you know, I was raised Catholic, super Catholic. I grew up in a half Irish, half Jewish neighborhood. Like I knew uh, there were people that I knew were Jewish, including uh, one of my member of the family was Jewish. Uh, uh, one of my uncles married a nice Jewish woman and they raised their kid uh, uh, in the Jewish faith. And we went to his bar mitzvah. And so I was familiar with Jews, but I wasn't familiar. or I, Somehow it came as a shock to me when – all the secular, bacon-eating, atheist, Democrat, liberal, socialist Jews I'd gotten to know working here at The Stranger, my home paper in Seattle, were suddenly getting (laughs) together to do Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And that kind of blew me away. Mm -hmm. I don't go to midnight mass, and I don't do anything around Easter, and you guys don't believe, and yet you're doing Yom Kippur. And what I got from them, what what they said to me was, this affirms our cultural identity as Jews. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah. oh, and that was really what picked the lock. Like, oh, I still feel very culturally Catholic and I can do things that affirm my cultural identity as Catholic. And that doesn't mean I yeah. believe that every turd that drops out of the Pope's ass is a little gold nugget. And it yeah. doesn't mean that I'm with the church on anything around human sexuality or reproductive right. freedom or the equality of the sexes. It just means I was raised in this faith tradition. And culturally, it, it did have an impact on me. And there are these rituals sort of lying around all over the place that I can pick up right. when I want and use yeah. not to, you know, do the hocus pocus or turn bread into body parts, but to, to <laughs> feel connected to the generations, to feel connected to my grandparents and great grandparents and my own parents and my mom. Yeah. And that has kind yeah. of emotional weight and significance. So you can say to your family, you can say to his family, we're doing this to affirm 
your identity, this family's identity culturally as Catholics, and we respect that, but we don't believe. Yeah. So we, we can, we're going to do this ritual, welcome this kid into your family on these Catholic terms, but we're not believers and then see where it goes. And then, but don't go, don't go in saying, fuck you. We're only doing this. This is it. No more after this. This is where the Catholic right. train ends. We're getting off at the station here. That's yeah. just going to like make them start to pine for the first communion dress that ain't coming. <laughs> yeah. So just focus on the moment. Here's this moment. Yeah. This gesture to, toward what's important to you, mother-in-law, father-in-law. Mm-hmm. And your yeah. side of the family so that you can see this kid as a part of your family and a part of your tradition. But after that, secular wolves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the way that you're explaining the cultural Catholicism is what my husband was trying to express to me, but just couldn't quite find the words. And I was, you know, I'm trying to be respectful of and you know it's it was his very relationship with his family and all of that as well. It was very deeply meaningful to me. Yeah. And perhaps it's very deeply meaningful to your husband. It was very deeply meaningful to me to see my whole family gather that way. It was very deeply meaningful to me to see my son in my great-grandfather's baptismal gown and in my mother's arms. All of that meant something and it didn't mean that the pope poops gold nuggets. It didn't mean that at all. Yeah. It meant that this kid was connected to this family through the generations, period, the end. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know what else happened? We were at the church doing the baptism. Father Ed, whose last name I won't use because I don't want to get him in trouble. The first church we approached, our our family church, they wouldn't let us have the baptism there. Mm -hmm. So we went to the next parish over to St. Gertrude's where they did let us have the baptism. Mm -hmm. And this is Mm -hmm. 18 years ago, 18 and a half years ago. And... The priest does the whole baptismal ceremony, and then in front of my whole large, extended Irish Catholic, still some conservatives in it, family, the priest blessed our relationship, mine and Terry's. So we got married, kind of, sort of, in a Catholic church. <laughs> and to have that priest stand there in front of my great aunts and instruct the whole family to love and support us in our relationship, wow, kind of blew me away. I didn't expect that. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. So go have your baptism and who knows, maybe there'll be a grace note there for you too, that you find as moving and meaningful as I found that moment to be for us. Thanks for the call. Have a good one. Bye. Hi, Dan. I'm a physical therapist in the Seattle area and my specialty is on pelvic dysfunction and pain. One thing I was really hoping you could clarify for me is an issue that I have pretty frequently, which is confronting religion and the pelvis. So a lot of the women I work with have had pelvic trauma or injuries or, you know, simply have pain during intercourse because of muscular dysfunction. But when I ask them to maybe do some muscle stretching or desensitization or, you know, working on their own muscles at home, um, I run into this barrier, which is that they have a religious objection to touching their own genitals. So I am not religious at all. I actually fundamentally don't really get the concept. And this is where I struggle to, you know, empathize with these patients. Um, And I know you have a background in growing up in a very religious family. So could you, for me, clarify what is the, and it's not just Catholic. I've worked with women who are Muslim, women who are Mormon, 
it, it seems to span all religions, and I can't figure out why women in particular are not entitled to, you know, map out and own their own genitals, even for a medical purpose. You know, I, I strongly encourage patients to masturbate to help with their pelvic pain, but, you know, even aside from that, they won't even you know, take ownership of their own anatomy and sometimes are even too uncomfortable to use a mirror to look at scar tissue or to look at um, the muscles I'm trying to show them. So any tips you have on interacting with, um, you know, in a sex positive way and a respectful way with religious patients as a medical provider would be much appreciated. Joining me by phone to help field this question, Ina is a Pakistani-Canadian ex-Muslim sex blogger and children's book author. You can and should follow her on Twitter at NiceMangos, and you can read her blog at NiceMangos.blogspot.com. Before we get to the question, Ina, I've always I've been a longtime follower and admirer of yours. I'm curious about Nice Mangos. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. What, I'm guessing what that might refer to, but how did that become your Twitter handle and the name of your blog? Um, well, actually, it started as a blog solely uh, focused on Pakistani sexuality, and mangoes are like the national fruit of Pakistan, and a perfect euphemism for something that is too taboo to discuss among Pakistanis. So that's how it came about. Well, it's terrific. And you wrote a book called My Cha-Cha is Gay, which is a children's book, kind of in the spirit of Heather Has Two Mommies, but for a Pakistani readership. Can you tell us a little bit about the book before we get to the question? Yeah, um, it's uh, set in Pakistan. It's about a little boy and his uncle who he loves very much. Um, but the it's seen through the little boy's eyes and he's confused about why some people don't treat his uncle nicely just because he's gay. So it's basically um, the boy trying to understand this and ending with the message that love belongs to everyone. Okay, pivoting to the question, so physical therapist specializes in pelvic pain. Has women come to her who have pelvic pain and they need to take her advice and it might help them to examine their own genitalia, to touch their own genitalia, to masturbate might help them with their pelvic pain. And she has these women who are coming to her because they're Muslim or Mormon or Catholic. They have these religious hangups or prohibitions against touching their own genitalia. Do you have any advice for how, as an ex-Muslim sex blogger, how to discuss these issues with these clients? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a it's not an easy situation. It's a tricky one for sure, especially if she doesn't come from that kind of a religious background, so it can make her feel uncomfortable. I can understand that. But I think the best uh, that we can hope for is just to shake that belief a little bit. Somehow, sometimes you can't really get people to stop believing in untruths, um, but you can provide them with information that can plant that seed of doubt. So, you know, giving them literature or pamphlets to show that no harm can come to you from simply just masturbation, I think that'd be a great place to start. And secondly, I think for her to arm herself with knowledge about the kinds of beliefs and fears that she's up against would, you know, do a lot in terms of giving her the confidence to confront why these women are having an issue with it. And uh, in terms of Islam, there are some emerging um, more sex positive schools of thought. Uh, So maybe looking into those and pointing her patients towards those uh, would be helpful for them because 
I mean, I'm a non-believer myself, so it's hard for me to say this uh, too convincingly because I would not want to read it about liberal Islam. But anyways, Mm. for people who are already believers, it can help to kind of lead them to a path where they can find some wiggle room in within the framework that they're used to operating. And maybe that's where the unraveling of their beliefs can begin. And this this isn't a problem that's unique to Islam. I'm coming at you from ex-Catholic land Mm -hmm. and the Catholic church in the catechism and, you know, the directives from mission control Pope land, they condemn masturbation using the exact same terms that they condemn homosexuality with that it's morally disordered. It's intrinsically evil. That's how they describe masturbation. And most Catholics, it seems the overwhelming majority of Catholics just kind of ignore that. Even Catholics who embrace what the church has to say about homosexuality being intrinsically disordered and evil, just ignore conveniently what it says about masturbation because they don't want to give up masturbation, mm-hmm. even if they want to not give up hating on gay people. Mm-hmm. Is it So the prohibition on Islam, in Islam, perhaps on female self-pleasure or masturbation generally isn't unique to Islam, but right now does it have more force in Islam than it does in Catholic land? Absolutely. Why is Uh, that? Well, I think Islam commands an orthodoxy that no other religion currently does unless you're practicing Westboro Baptist style, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, It's just a very uh, literalist kind of religion where it's an all or nothing. However, people have made their own paths within it. but mostly what we're dealing with is uh, fundamentalist, literalist interpretations. And that's why, because people haven't uh, created that space between um, their secular, modern life and their faith. So for them, faith is their life and a way of life. And we're trying for that space to happen between mosque and state. Mm-hmm. But it just doesn't exist yet, unfortunately. And people like me who speak out against get death threats, rape threats, and uh, yeah, have to be anonymous. I'm so sorry that you have to deal with that. Um, For me, it was, you know, I I was raised very, very Catholic. My dad was a Catholic deacon. My mom was a Catholic lay minister. I went to the seminary. And my sexuality, when it began to reveal itself to me, brought me into conflict with my faith. (laughs) And I was like, well, I can have one or the other here and not both. And it wasn't like I chose my sexuality because I couldn't get away right. from it. I couldn't run from it. And in a way, my sexuality relieved me of my faith. And it was a relief. Was right. it similar for you? What was your journey to ex-Muslim like? What Was it a sexuality issue that brought you into conflict with your faith and then relieved you of it? Or was it something else? Uh, no, it was more the inequality of men and women. I mean, however, I did consider um, how, I mean, for me, I'm a straight woman, but LGBT people matter to me a lot. Issues matter to me a lot. So obviously I did, uh, that did factor into my unraveling, but just being a woman, having a vagina and being Muslim is hard. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I I think that then once you start um, reading up on it and reading the scriptures, less and less of it makes sense. I'm not familiar with any scripture that you can read closely and it makes sense. Book of Mormon, the Talmud, the Bible, the the yeah. Quran. Like if you really dive into any holy text, you're going to find plenty of holes. Exactly. If you if you're willing to look at it honestly, and that's why so many atheists say that reading the scripture for them was really how their atheism began because they just couldn't make sense of it anymore. That's how Julia Sweeney lost her faith. 
Julia Sweeney wrote, and then God said, ha, she was an SNL cast member. She was very publicly a practicing Catholic. And then she went to a Bible study course, read the Bible, and it all fell apart. And now she's not a militant atheist, just a vocal one, which is what militant is what anybody who's religious calls somebody who's an atheist who doesn't keep their mouth shut. They're militant. (laughs) Um, Circling back to the caller, it's not her job to talk these people out of uh, their faiths or to poke holes in their faith or to encourage them to read the scriptures and maybe walk away from it in the best interest of their sexual pleasure or ability to touch themselves. You, I assume you're still, you know, in your family and you still interact with people who do believe Mm -hmm. what's the best way for this doctor to advocate for these women's vaginas without necessarily causing conflict for them with their faiths. As I said, um, just providing basic information is a great starting point because some of the misconceptions are truly unbelievable. Many people write to me and think that masturbation is slowly killing them and, um, you know, making them, uh, lose energy and making them be unable to move. So just the most simplest information um, can start to shake these beliefs. And just to know what kinds of things she's up against. I mean, the fact that some people believe that masturbation is adultery. So because it's not, uh, it's extramarital sexual activity. So. We, had a, we had a right-wing pastor here in town who argued that men who masturbated were guilty of gay sex because they were touching a penis. Right. It's, it's kind of like that, right? So it helps to know what you're, what you're going to be talking about once you confront these issues. And there's a lot of data out there that shows it's healthy. Like male masturbation, again, there's just a big new study coming out that shows that men who ejaculate regularly, men who masturbate regularly, are less at risk of developing prostate cancer. Exactly, yeah. Draining the pipes. Right. And then um, there's the belief that uh, people think their hands will get pregnant. Some Muslims do oh. believe that in the, <laughs> on the day of judgment, your hands will be pregnant and speak out against your sexual deeds with them. So, I mean. I've never yeah. heard that. That's a new one for me even. I'm, I'm going to have to lie down on the floor for a while in the podcast <laughs> studio and, and think about pregnant hands at judgment day. <laughs> Aina, she's a Pakistani-Canadian ex-Muslim sex blogger, children's book author. Follow her on Twitter at NiceMangos. Read her blog, nicemangos.blogspot.com. And I understand you're starting a podcast. Yes, I'd love to have you on. I'd love to come on. Oh, my gosh. The uh, the, the podcast Circle Jerk is never-ending. You come on mine, I'll come on yours. <laughs> right, right. It's it's fantastic. Where can people find your podcast? SoundCloud.com forward slash Polite Conversations. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Hi, Dan. Um, I just have a little question. I'm kind of like the sounding board for seems to be everybody in my life, friends, family, whatever. Everybody, you know, texts me questions and problems and concerns about all their lives. And nobody ever gives a crap about asking about me. And that's okay for the most part. Today's my birthday. <sighs> Sorry. And I've heard it from all about two friends of mine who gave a crap to send a stupid text to say, hey, happy birthday. One that was quickly followed up with a slew of texts about her and her problems and her life issues. 
I'm not a big birthday person, so it's kind of not a big deal. But and I really want to always be somebody who's there for my friends and cares and is giving and everything. But it's kind of hard. It's kind of draining. It's kind of draining on myself every day, day to day. I struggle myself with some pretty severe depression and anxiety and pretty much nobody knows or cares. And then on the one day that kind of is supposed to be my day, nobody cares. And nobody, oh, nobody cares. I'm just kind of struggling with like how to, how to deal with myself because I know I need to deal with myself, but I want to be with my friends. But how, how to, how to have those boundaries and say, basically screw off. (laughs) Can you go away right now? (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like I want to be there for my friends because I want people to be there for me. Although nobody is, (laughs) nobody cares. Nobody seems to recognize or give a shit. But anyways, this is probably stupid, but if there's any piece of advice you can give, that would be, that would be awesome. I don't know. Just maybe something to sort of say, like, Hey, love you. (laughs) Can you go away right now? (laughs) Can you just figure out your own shit and leave me alone for a little bit? I like, I really want to, I really want to still continue to be caring and, and thoughtful to everybody, but it's so hard. It's so hard when I'm dealing with my own shit and especially on a day, I'm not a big birthday person, but to have nobody give a shit. <sighs> oh, sorry. Okay. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Anyways, I just love to know how to like kind of put people in their place, but nicely. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway, whatever advice you can give would be awesome. Thank you. I don't want to blame you for the failure of your friends to come through for you on your birthday or at other times, but listen to your call, back it all up and listen to your call. Again, you unpack your unhappiness, your misery, you're crying. And then you just wipe it all away with, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It fucking matters. It matters that you're miserable. Why are you saying that how you feel at this moment that you're reaching out and asking for help? Why are you negating that in the end? Why in the clutch are you saying it doesn't matter? It doesn't matter. It matters. Your feelings matter. But I worry that your strategies are self-defeating because you don't ask for how you can get your needs met by your friends who don't seem to be aware of them, I suspect in part because you're not putting them out there. You ask what you should say to them to get them to go away when going away is not what you want from them. If they went away, it would only compound your misery. What you want is for them to be there for you in a way you are there for them, but they're failing you. And you have to ask for that. People can't meet needs that they aren't made aware of. And you can sit at home telling yourself that people should just know. But people kind of don't know. People get wrapped up in their own shit. And if you're doing for people, if you're doing a kind of emotional labor for people, you have a right, a responsibility, particularly considering how you feel about your needs not being met here, to speak up, to ask for, to demand. 
when your friends get you on the phone and they go on and on about themselves and they don't ask about you, point that out to them. Point out to your friends that sometimes you feel like they're not being good friends to you, as good a friend to you as you are to them because they're not asking you about your day and you have pain too. You say you suffer from depression and anxiety and then you said no one knows and then you added or cares. I suspect it's more the former. No one knows. I suspect you're not really sharing your depression and anxiety because you're the one who's supposed to have it all together. That's part of your role slash shtick. They come to you for help. They come to you for advice because you've got it nailed down. And so it's going to undermine how they perceive you and you value how you're perceived to some extent. If you lay out the fact that you have depression, you have anxiety, you have issues too. People can't care about your issues. People can't care about your pain or your suffering or your depression or anxiety if they don't know about it. Tell them. You got to tell them. So all this shit about how do I tell them to go away right now because I'm hurting. That's not what you want. You're hurting and you want them to come to you. But I think some perverse kind of brain fart has put it in your head that when you're hurting and they're not coming to you or they're coming to you for the wrong reasons, that if you shove them away, if you tell them to go away right now, that then they'll come to you. Then they'll realize they've been fucking up. And that's really – humans are not always really bright or as intuitive. Not everyone has as high an emotional IQ as perhaps you do. And they may respect your wishes when you tell them to go away and then you're going to be even more hurt by their actions. If you don't like the role you're being forced to play, you can walk off the stage. If you don't want to be everyone's therapist and the person who holds people's hands when they're suffering, when no one, none of these people hold yours, you can walk off the stage. You will be more alone then than ever. However, a better strategy would be to hold their hands and open up about your pain, your suffering, your needs to reach out and ask not to reject them for failing to meet needs of yours that they're not aware of. Happy birthday. I'm not a big birthday person either. I don't like to do anything on my birthday. All I do on my birthday is hide, right? I don't want to have a party. Um, Usually I'm with my husband and we just go somewhere and we do something fun. But it's not a birthday party and I want to hear from a million people. The people whose birthdays tend to have brass bands and everyone making a fuss about them are people who make a fuss about their own birthdays because they're signaling to their friends that they think that this is a very significant date and they want it acknowledged. Attention must be paid. So the people you see in your life who their birthdays are, everyone's getting together in a bar, everyone's having dinner, everyone's paying attention to that person. Think about how that person behaved in the run up to their birthday. Were they not asking for that kind of attention? Were they not demanding that kind of attention? Were they not signaling to you and the rest of their friends that they had expectations about how they would be taken care of or acknowledged on their special day? I guarantee you they all were. They all are. Nobody gets thrown a surprise birthday party by accident. If you want a fuss made about your birthday, make a fuss about a fuss being made about your birthday and a fuss will be made. And if a fuss isn't made, if you communicated clearly that you would like some emotional payback and attention on this day, then you need to make better friends. And you can do that. That is an act of will. You can get out there into new social circles. You can meet new people. You can engage with new people on different terms. 
where there's more mutual meeting of needs, emotional, social, birthday, show, than there are now. I'm sorry that you're hurting. I'm sorry that your friends aren't mind readers, that they just don't know about the pain that you're in. But nobody's friends are mind readers. You have to tell them. People can't come through for you if they don't know what you need. Tell them what you need. Hi, Dan. I live in Houston, a straight male. Been married for almost eight years, seven years. And my wife cheated on me uh, a couple weeks ago. But the first thing I found out about was that she was lying to me about going to the bar frequently all through the day. And then I asked her if there was anything else, and she said no. And the next day, her phone was buzzing in her lap, and I unlocked it, and uh, it was a guy sexting her. And I found out that she was having an affair. Both uh, sexual, she said it wasn't fulfilling. She only met him up twice, and it sucked. But also a psychological affair. And then... Uh, a few days later, when, when I asked her to never go back to that bar she had been frequenting where she also met the guy and also did some coke, she decided she needed to go out to see her very good friend. And when I tracked her iPhone, because I couldn't trust her, that's where she was. But she made me drag it out of her. And then uh, all the shit hit the fan, and I, and I took our six-year-old daughter and changed the plans for the weekend, not that I deprived her. Our daughter's still going to spend time with her family over the summer and my family over the summer like we originally planned. I just didn't give her the chance to say goodbye because I thought she had a Coke problem because of all the lying. I don't think she has a Coke problem anymore, but she's still lying to me. This is, this is over, this is like a week later and we had kind of a bad night after having some good communication and some and good face-to-face time. And I unlocked her phone again, and she had been texting with another guy from Tinder. And she says, it's just flirting, and I need to get out of her fucking business. And she left tonight. And I don't know what to do. We have a six-year-old daughter. Your wife either isn't the person you believed her to be all those years ago when you married her and then a couple years later when you decided to scramble your DNA together with hers or your wife is having some sort of emotional or psychotic break and throwing herself into drugs and dicks and this is evidence of some kind of breakdown or she's slamming her hand down on the self-destruct button by just hitting adultery so hard right now, hitting infidelity, hitting cheating so hard right now. And not making any real effort to hide it from you. And yeah, you shouldn't snoop, but yours is one of those cases where snooping is retroactively exonerated. You had a right to know these things. You have a right to know these things. I've spoken frequently, constantly on the show, elsewhere, all around the world, about how our default setting when an infidelity or an affair comes to light should be working through it, getting through it. That the expectation culturally should be that an affair is something that a couple in a long-term committed relationship, particularly with their children involved, can get past because they're so common. Men and women cheat at increasingly the same rate men and women cheat. And so almost all committed long-term relationships 
will involve infidelity at some point. Somebody's going to get cheated on at some point. And if we define an infidelity or as always a relationship extinction level event, we're basically saying at the beginning of every relationship or before any relationship can even get off the ground, we've written its death warrant because of our expectations around how we're obligated to react when an infidelity is exposed. That said, in this case, I don't see how you avoid taking your daughter and calling a lawyer and initiating divorce proceedings because your wife's affairs, the drug use, the alcohol abuse, it seems, the multiple affairs, all of that constitutes together a, a fundamental rejection of, of your marriage, of you, of your family. And I don't think you have to stick around for years and years and years of that. I don't think the onus falls on you to process or work through it. The onus falls on her. And it may clarify her mind, may help her see what she has to do to make it up to you or to salvage this marriage if she gets a letter from your lawyer about you initiating proceedings to end this marriage, which I believe would be in your best interests and your kid's best interest. I'm sorry. Hi, I'm a teacher in Midwest, and I recently took on the position of being an advisor for the GSA at our high school. And ran into an issue lately that I'm not really sure how to address the students. I have a non-out trans student um, who has been very, very active in the club lately and really appreciate all of her inputs. But we were recently invited to a drag show put on by one of the colleges nearby. Um, And during the meeting, she really expressed a lot of disdain for the idea of drag. Um, In her eyes, drag was or is a mockery of trans people. And she sees it as people basically putting down trans people. And I know a lot of people who do drag and it's never seemed to be their, you know, their motivation. And I just don't really know how to address this with my student. I was wondering if you could. Joining me by phone to help field this one, Parker Malloy, a transgender woman and upworthy writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, Rolling Stone, The Guardian. Parker. Dan, it is good to be here. Thank is, you so much for having me. So good to have you back. Thanks for uh, your willingness to uh, come on the show whenever we call drag. Uh-huh. Drag. Is it anti-trans? You know, so here's the thing. This is kind of a tricky question with a lot of hidden layers to it. I mean, first off, it's a trans student who isn't out yet, which means pretty much any response that from the teacher needs to be vague enough to protect that student's privacy. Mm-hmm. But to the question at hand, uh, what seems to be kind of a recurring theme over time is the question, is drag offensive? Is it mis- misogynistic or is it transphobic in nature, right? Um, well, my opinion, in my opinion, the answer to that is it can be just as anything can be it's not inherently like that you know a movie a tv show a stand-up comedian can be transphobic Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean they necessarily are so you know what the teacher should do in my opinion you know i'd probably take the student one-on-one and just kind of talk it out you know try to explain what i just said that maybe if they go to the show, they might see that it's good, a good entertaining time, or maybe, I mean, it could be a total train wreck. Uh, Life is full of surprises. You know, I did drag for 10 years, and 
I did it a long time ago. We're talking 25 years ago when I started doing drag for 10 years. And it was really in the drag scene uh, when I was doing drag that I met the first trans women that I ever got to know. That drag 25 years ago, before there really were there really was kind of a visible trans community before the trans movement became what it is now, before there were trans spaces, that the drag scene, these drag clubs, bars that had drag shows, it was a space where trans women were out and could totally. feel comfortable and accepted. So for me as a recovering former drag queen who still has a <laughs> few boxes of drag in the house because you never know, I might get back in. It pains me when I hear people say that drag is inherently – anti-trans. I certainly saw people do numbers that were derisive or mocking of people that I don't think drag should pick on, yeah. like that punch-up ethos. Because I always felt when I was doing drag that it wasn't women that were being sent up, and it certainly wasn't women being sent up when I did drag. It wasn't femininity that was being mocked. It was masculinity that was being deconstructed and mocked, as far as I was concerned, or at least with good drag. That's really interesting. I hadn't actually ever thought about it that way. <laughs> well, because, you know, you, you, I'm a six foot one guy and in drag, I was a six foot 12 guy and or taller even at times. And, you know, I was undeniably a, a, a male bodied person taking on these things that are sort of assigned to women as somehow defining of femininity in this culturally prescribed way that aren't and sort of exploding them and also exploding what it, went, it meant to be a man because I was still a man. Right. And you could tell I was a man and I was not trying to pass. In fact, I was aggressively not trying to pass. And I always felt like when I did drag, it was about making fun of myself or playing with my own sense of gender or privilege and mm – -hmm. And tearing it up and throwing it up in the air. And also, you know, when you're a gay guy and you do drag, you sort of in the gay bar, you take yourself out of the sexual rat race and out of the sexual marketplace because nobody wants to sleep with you. And you can move through a gay bar very differently <laughs> when you've dressed up in a way that says, I'm not trying to get into your pants and I'm not expecting anybody's going to want to get into my panties. So you can talk to me without having to weigh whether or not you want to sleep with me. And that's a really different way to live in a gay bar, or be in a gay mm -hmm. bar. For a gay guy. So that's for me what was drag about. So when I, those two things taken together, that for me drag was about making fun of maleness and masculinity or tearing it apart. And also drag was where I met the first trans women I got to know. Mm -hmm. And it felt to me, for them, it felt, and, and, and they said that it felt like the only place they felt safe. So to hear from now, from, and not just this trans kid at this GSA, but from other trans women who said this, that drag for them now feels like an unsafe space or a mockery of transness, I find that heartbreaking if that's what I, drag has become i find that heartbreaking well you know and honestly i may have been one of those voices who had said that at some point in time um but you know you kind of grow and you learn and you realize that don't judge a book by its cover i guess or don't dra judge a drag queen by their dress I, something like that <laughs> you know can you risk saying to somebody in a situation like this a young not out trans person that this isn't about you that this, this, these men in dresses doing a particular kind of performance mm -hmm. isn't about transness and isn't about you. That some people say that trans women are just men in dresses doesn't mean that these guys who are men in dresses mm -hmm. are making fun of trans women or making things worse or less safe for trans women. Yeah. See, and that's the thing. It's like uh, people who are anti-trans will always try to conflate drag queens and trans women and that's hurtful it's harmful and all sorts of stuff like that 
But that's not on the drag queens for doing that. Mm-hmm. It's that they're being misrepresented. And I think that, you know, maybe uh, see if the student would be okay with the next meeting following the event, starting with a quick explanation of the difference between drag and trans, you know, just, just to kind of, you know, a palate cleanser, you mm-hmm. know, if, if you will, you know, or say, hey, you can sit this one out, you know, no big deal. We will go and do whatever and, and come then, back and you'll be here. And we could apply a, a critical analysis to drag that I think you could go to this and, and if the whole GSA goes, everybody could go and then you could discuss the performances. There are good drag queens and bad drag queens. There are good witches and bad witches. And if somebody gets up and does a number or an act or a routine or a bit that's honest to God, objectively mocking of trans people that should be discussed. That can be assessed. That can be critiqued and pulled apart. But there's, but there'll be people up there who don't do that. I just don't think that the guy up there in drag is just by being up there in drag, mocking trans people. Right. It's not inherently transphobic. That's and end of point. (laughs) Important to remember too, that the people attacking Trans women and claiming trans women are drag queens, they hate drag queens too. It's oh, yeah. not like they're going, we, our beloved drag queens and these horrible trans women, they hate all of us. Yeah, yeah, they totally do. They, if they could just rid us from the world, life would be uh, peachy for them. You know, we just have to get in a time machine and go back about 60 years and go back into hiding. <laughs> Which is not going to happen. We are not going to do it. No. Parker Malloy, you can read her writing at Upworthy. You can also read her clips at the New York Times, Rolling Stone, The Guardian, and other publications. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone and helping me field this one, Parker. Thanks, Dan. This is a comment for the woman in episode 506 that went to the sex club and had a great time, but a negative reaction to her partner touching another woman. Sister, I am you nine months ago, uh, having spent the last nine months doing the exact opposite of Dan's excellent advice. I've been pushing myself into situations that I'm not ready for or comfortable with, and I've been flailing around in an extreme trial and error process that has actually resulted in me developing an anxiety disorder for the first time in my life. Have we had some really awesome experiences? Yes. So there is hope. But was it worth the price? No. In fact, today I'm off to my first appointment with a psychologist ever. Uh, Hearing your call and Dan's response made me cry and say, what have I done to myself? So listen to Dan, put your pleasing perfectionist tendencies in check, slow down, and have boundaries. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in reference to episode 506, the woman who wanted her husband to get his hands off of that woman's boobs. Oh, my gosh. I have the same head-heart dilemma going on um, in my non-monogamous situation. So I've been non-monogamous for about four years now. And I'm still in a pretty constant battle with my head believing it should be one way and my heart reacting a different way. So I don't think her experience is so abnormal, but I differ with the advice. So my thought is that non-monogamy is a skill. And if I wanted to play the piano, I wouldn't sit down and say, oh, wow, this is too hard. I'll just get up and sit down again in a couple of months and maybe it'll be easier. It doesn't work like that. I think you have to... Try it. You have to figure out your shit, work through it, and keep moving forward, not just wait for it to be a better time. So non-monogamy is a skill. That's what I think. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to the woman in episode 506 who said that her partners were having a hard time with her tiny dog being on the bed. I have a dog. It's not a teacup, but 
my partner and I have trained the dog to go to a sex mat, a little carpet on the floor when we're having sex. At first, she would be annoying and be sniffing and wanting to jump on us, but we would just stop what we were doing, pick her up and put her on the mat. And yeah, that made for an awkward few times. But now since then, if we start getting a little too involved with one another, she just exits the bed all on her own and goes and sits on the mat until we're done. So maybe your caller could try that and not have to exile her poor pup from the bedroom. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, please give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Parker Marie Malloy on Twitter at Parker Malloy. Follow Alina on Twitter at NiceMangos. Enter My Amateur Porn Film Festival. Go to HumpFilmFest.com for information about entering Hump. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for